0: Well, the Distinguished Service Cross is the U.S. Army's second highest military honor awarded to those who display extraordinary heroism in combat. The Silver Star is for gallantry in action, and the Purple Heart is for wounds sustained from an enemy in battle. All three of these awards were Given in, uh, to a World War II combat veteran, who also posthumously received the PDSA Dickens Medal from Britain and the War and Peace Medal of Bravery from the U.S., making him the most highly decorated dog in military history. His name was Chips. Chips was a cross between a husky and a collie and a German shepherd, and He was known for his uh, extraordinary bravery and obedience. He passed obedience school with a perfect score. And on July 10, 1943, while serving in North Africa uh, with the 3rd Infantry Division, Chips and his handler, uh, Private John Rowell, were pinned down along with the other U.S. troops by a machine gun nest of uh, Italian soldiers on the beach, and there seemed no hope of them escaping that, and so... Uh, little chips made a run for it, scrambled up the beach, dodging bullets, jumped into the pillbox. And at that point, the machine gun fire stopped, and Private Rowell uh, heard barking, growling, and terrified shouts. And he recalled, quote, there was an awful lot of noise. And then I saw one fellow come out of the door with chips at his throat. And I called him off before he could kill the man. And then the other three also came out with their hands up, terrified of little chips, and they surrendered to the US troops. And during that attack, uh, the dog sustained a scalp wound and burns around his eye and his mouth. But later that day, he rounded up another 10 Italian soldiers, taking them prisoner as well. Uh, He was chosen to be the guard dog at the Casablanca conference where he stood sentry and he met Winston Churchill and President Franklin Roosevelt. Chips was also the only member of the U.S. military to bite the hand of General Dwight Eisenhower. Apparently, um, Chips must have sensed that his handler, Private Roel, was nervous in the presence of the great general. And uh, when he suddenly bent down to pet the dog, the dog bit his hand to defend his handler. Ike should have known better than to pet a war dog. Well, Chips, the war dog, proves that it is an honor to be set apart for special service, but that that special service is only possible if you are obedient. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we see the same lesson for us, that we have been set apart for special service. We've been chosen. We've been equipped for what? Well, for obedience. You'll remember in 1 Peter is a, a letter that the Apostle Peter is writing to churches that have been scattered across the circuit in Asia Minor. They were scattered from their homes because of persecution. These people have lost family. They have lost jobs. They are unsettled. They are refugees. They are living in a foreign place. And they might be wondering if God had perhaps forgotten about them. Why are they, the faithful ones, being treated so poorly? Why have they lost their homes and scattered abroad? And so Peter writes this letter that got passed around from church to church to encourage them, to give them hope, to remind them that God is in control of all things. And so the theme of 1 Peter we've called keep calm and carry on. And that's really the theme for all of our lives today, isn't it? Just no matter what's happening in the chaos of the world, we need to not panic, take a deep breath, keep calm, and just do the next right thing. And so the epistle of Peter... Peter is writing to us to teach us how to do the next right thing in family and with government and uh, with our speech and all these different things. Christianity 101. But at first, he introduces himself with four foundation stones of salvation. Peter's the type of guy that because this is so urgent and on his heart, he doesn't first make chit-chat and small talk. You meet him at the door and he sticks, you know, steak in your mouth. Chew first, chat later. And so we've got these meaty doctrines Right up front in the greeting, which we've called the four foundation stones of salvation. The plan of salvation, which we saw the first time we looked at this. He talks about the foreknowledge of God and the concept of election, that God chooses us. That's the plan of salvation before we were born. Then there's the path of salvation that we looked at. And salvation, you don't go from being you know, a wretched sinner to... Christ-like and perfect overnight. There's a a progression in your sanctification on earth, which is consummated at glorification when you die. So people who are new believers will necessarily usually be less mature in their faith in their Christ-likeness than somebody who's been a believer for a long time in an ideal world, right? And so we looked at that, how you cooperate with the Spirit to become more mature in Christ. That's the path of salvation, sanctification. Today we're going to cover two, Lord willing, the purpose of salvation, which we'll see is obedience, and the promise of salvation, which is very closely linked. It's the concept of the covenant. So let's first look at the the third foundation stone of salvation, the purpose of salvation. Let me read for you again from verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So there's the plan of salvation. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In the sanctification of the Spirit, there's the path of salvation towards holiness. And here's the purpose for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we're going to move our microscope just a couple of millimeters over and catch the next phrase here, for obedience to Jesus Christ. This is the purpose for which you were chosen. This is why God foreknew you and elected you and chose you and is sanctifying you. This is for a purpose and the purpose is for obedience to Jesus. Now we know that salvation is not earned by works. That is the largest misconception in the world. It's people who think Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. So, you want to be a good person, so you do good things. That concept is unbiblical. The idea that if you think of good things to do and you do them and you do enough of them, they undo all the bad things that you've done. Whereas, what the Bible teaches us is that you need to be perfect to be in heaven, you need to be perfect as your father is perfect, Matthew chapter 5, and unless everything you do is always only perfectly good, you don't qualify. The Bible also says that you are born in sin, you have a sin nature, and even the good things that you try to do are tainted with sin, usually selfishness or pride or self-reliance. You're not doing it out of a love for God. So we're really kind of, what's it, up a creek without a paddle, as it were, theologically speaking. That's the problem that we all have. But another mistake is made in circles like ours where we focus so much on the grace by faith aspect, the way that you're saved is not by doing good things but by trusting in Jesus who did everything perfectly that sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking it's so great that Jesus did everything perfectly, we don't need to do anything. And that's kind of a half-truth. So just in case you're new here, let me just re-explain that part, you don't become worthy of heaven, you don't become righteous by doing good things to make you righteous, because you have to be perfect. So how do we become righteous? Jesus Christ did everything perfectly. He's the only person ever who didn't sin once even in his thoughts, not in his attitudes or desires. He always only wanted what would bring God the Father the most glory. He never sinned. So that perfection and that perfect infinite righteousness was made available to anybody who renounces their own good works, which are tainted by sin, and clings to the good works of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And so that's why he died on the cross. He bore the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins and made available his righteousness so that whoever wants to, whoever decides, okay, I'm done with trying to get myself being perfect. I want his perfection put in my account. All you need to do is trust yourself to him. And all of that righteousness is put into your account so that you become Christ-like, perfect, and holy in God's sight. That was the plan of redemption. But then we saw the path is, well, now you need to kind of live up to that, right? You, you, You want to stop gossiping. You want to stop stealing. You want to stop lusting. You want to put off those sins, and you want to start serving and praising God and loving others and, and glorifying Him. And as you become more and more like Christ and as the Spirit works on you kind of one sin at a time, you do become more like Christ over time. That's the path of salvation. That's <laughs> sanctification. But because God is the one that's working in you to do these things, it might lead you to say, well, if I don't have to do good works to be saved, then I don't have to do good works because I am saved. And technically, that's true. That's why this gets confusing. (laughs) Technically, if you got saved and died before you did anything good or right, that wouldn't matter because it's not your good and right that gets you there. It's Jesus's. Like the thief on the cross, for example, right? I mean, he still did something with what he had that time, but it's not like he has a whole life of good works. So it is true that even after you're saved, your good works don't keep your salvation or contribute to it. But if that leads you to say, well, therefore, it doesn't matter. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to, you know, uh, put money in the plate. I don't have to serve. I don't, I don't have to watch my speech. I don't have to take my thoughts captive when I'm lusting or anxious or whatever. I can, just, I can just let go and let God, as they say in certain circles. If that's your attitude, you're missing the point of why you were saved. That's what Peter's talking about here. Telling these people, as, as you're spread around, they might be thinking, what is the point of being Christian if I'm kicked out of my house, kicked out of my country? God seems to have forgotten me. He, he assures them, no, this was foreordained before you were even born. He is making you more like Christ. And remember that no matter where you are and what's happening in your life, the purpose of your salvation is that you will obey Jesus. There is never an excuse not to obey Jesus. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. Sometimes people think, well... Surely God doesn't expect me to, to obey Him now that I'm, whatever, in prison or abandoned by my spouse or uh, whatever, being abused by my boss. You know, the rules don't count. No, you were saved to obey Jesus even in the midst of trials. So it's not your baptism that saves you or repentance or confession or communion or church attendance. It is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ that saves. The person is who he is, the son of God who's sinless, and the work, the sin bearing on the cross, his death and resurrection. And Paul actually anticipates this in Romans 6. You probably know this passage, Romans 6 verse 1, where Paul has just explained the gospel and then he kind of, he does what a good teacher does. He says, you know, I know what you're thinking. I can anticipate your question. If you've understood what I've said, that grace is by faith alone, what then? Shall we sin more that grace may abound? If God gets more and more glory by covering more and more of my sin, doesn't it follow that I can just sin more and more and he'll just get more and more glory the more and more he forgives? And then Paul responds by saying, May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he's not saying, May it never be, you would lose your salvation. (laughs) He's saying, You know, technically, no matter what you did, you're not going to lose your salvation. But what does that say about you? Have you been saved from your sin if you're still living in your sin? And the answer is probably no, right? You've missed the point of why you were saved, to have a relationship with Jesus. We do these works to please him, not to earn things. So our works don't accomplish our salvation. They indicate our salvation. It's a very, very important concept. Our good works, which will include anything that God tells you to do in the Bible, Baptism, confession, communion, um, fellowshipping, being hospitable, um, all the one another's, anything that's good that God tells you to do. Our good works don't accomplish our salvation, they indicate our salvation. I've told you about pastor and author Gary Chapman, right? He wrote that uh, book, The Five Love Languages which I was convinced was a lot of drivel except it turns out my love language is gift giving, so I wanted my wife to know that. So a reminder of this often, you know, there's these five love languages and everyone has their own one and it's either uh, words of affirmation, oh, sweetie, you're so wonderful, or um, quality time, let's just spend time together, uh, or gifts. I mean, why wouldn't you want that? or acts of service, I'll do the dishwasher, honey, oh, he loves me, Um, or physical touch, you know, I just need a hug every once in a while. So everyone has their own ones, and usually you don't even understand what's so appealing about the other person's love language, but it's good if you figure them out, if you're married especially, right? Well, many people say that they love Jesus. They call themselves Christians, but they don't show Jesus the love that he wants, the love that he asks for. They do things that they think is pleasing Jesus, and they don't know from the Bible what does Jesus actually want. And so I'm going to read you just five verses, and you tell me, well, don't say anything, just think. um, After the five verses, see if you can spot what is Jesus' love language. It's not in Gary Chapman's list. He just made that list up. But this is Jesus' list. I'll I'll give all five to you. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. That's John three thirty six. Whoever does not obey. Hebrews 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became the source of salvation to all who obey him. That's Hebrews 5, 9. Here's 1 John 2, 3. I quote this a lot because it's the 1, 2, 3, right? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments... 1 John 2, 3. And he has 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. That's 1 John 5, 2 and 3. How do we know we love God? That we keep His commandments. They're not burdensome. That's not something we're doing to earn our salvation. We just We love to keep His commandments. So what's Jesus' love language? In one word, obedience. Now I learned this as a, a brand new believer and it completely revolutionized the way I saw the Bible and Christianity. This is why we've been saved. We've been saved to obey. And so if you want to show love to Jesus, you learn what he wants and then you do it. And some of it's very easy, and some of it's extremely difficult. And so we do it and die trying. Why? Not to earn our salvation. Our salvation's in the bank. But out of love for him. John Piper has his famous illustration of bringing flowers to your wife. You don't, here's your, you don't say, well, here's your flowers. You wanted them, Right? I mean, the whole point of bringing your wife flowers is to get the brownie points, right? So do you want that relationship or don't you? Are you doing it out of duty or are you doing it out of love? Oh, I had to give these to you. Oh, oh, Johnny, why did you? Well, because it's my duty as a husband. No, that, you get no points for that, right? Oh, Johnny, why did you? Because I couldn't help myself. I love you so much and I know this will bring you joy. Major brownie points, Right? Well, it's the same with Jesus, kind of. I mean, You don't come to Jesus and Jesus says, why did you come to church today? And you're like, well, because I have to. I'm a Christian. Well, okay. How about because I love singing to you with all of your people. Because I love hearing your word read and explained and applied because I love encouraging your people and and building them up and I love being encouraged by them. Maybe that's a better reason to go to church because I want to partake in in your body and your blood with my other fellow believers as we worship you and as we remember what you did for us. That's a good reason to come to church, not because you need credit. We don't take attendance. It was this last week I got to preach at the, the University of Mobile Chapel. Some of you were there, right? And um, I actually made a comment about it, how, how interesting it is to me that you have to scan in to go to chapel. You scan in and you have to scan out to make sure you're there for the whole time. Because they have to go to chapel 11 times per semester. No, 8 times out of 11. Yeah, 8 times per semester. And when I got there, I said, oh, it's raining. Is the attendance going to be down today? And they said, no, today's the eighth time. So this is the week you want to be here. And it was packed. Next week, don't know who's preaching. That guy's going to have an empty room. Why? Because these are students who have to drag themselves out of bed to get to chapel. And they're doing it because they have to get a credit. Some of them. And others of them are there because they love the Lord Jesus. And they love singing to him. And they love his word. And they love fellowshipping. And those are not the same thing. We understand that, right? You might say, are there other ways of pleasing Christ? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's a person who says that he's in charge. That's what it means to call somebody Lord, to to confess that they are in charge. Right? He's your Lord that you're going to obey. That's the point we read earlier from First, chap- uh, first Peter chapter 3 where he says, Peter says that um, Sarah was subject to Abraham calling him Lord, in other words, admitting that he was the one that was responsible. So, that, so that's what you do when you say to Jesus. You're submitting to him and you're calling him Lord. You're saying, you, you're in charge of me. So Jesus says, there are many who say that, call themselves Christians, call me Lord. Then he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. You see, there's two different groups. It's like a Venn diagram. Within the big group, there's lots of people that say, Lord, Lord, you are my Lord. But they say that. And in that group, there's a smaller group that actually does the will of my father. That's the group that goes to be with him in heaven. Many will say, Lord, but will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but those that do the will of my Father. That was Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This week when I was learning about um, Chips the dog, I also learned about another dog who's just as famous. He has a YouTube channel. Um, you know, his little YouTube clip has gone viral. His name is Riken. Riken was a service dog that was trained in obedience school, and he was so bad that they put his final exam on the Internet, and it is hilarious. He's a little German shepherd, full of life, went through all of the obedience school, and his job is to be a service animal that helps Um, disability people, people in a wheelchair, for example. So he has to pull the wheelchair and help them. He has to be able to open the refrigerator with a little cord that hangs from it. If they've got a a walker and they're walking, you know those walkers with the little tennis balls underneath them like that? He has to walk next to them and make sure that he clears a way for them. So what Riken does is he pulls the guy out of the wheelchair and drags the wheelchair away He pulls the whole fridge, trying to get it to fall onto the guy. And when the guy's walking with his walker, he keeps grabbing the tennis ball and ripping the walker away and taking it across the room. And he's scampering around and having a jolly old time. And it's hilarious to watch. I mean, he failed every part of the exam. He's not a service dog. It doesn't help that you go through obedience school if you're against the person you're supposed to help. I mean, it is cute and it is funny, but it's useless. As, as a service creature, right? It might as well be my dog at that point. Well, a lot of people call themselves Christians and they go to church and they hear the Bible and they read the Bible, but then when it comes down to an actual trial in their life, they don't do what they're told. They don't cast their cares on Jesus. They don't trust in Him and apply what they know about the sovereignty of God to their situation. When there's an opportunity at work, somebody does something to you and you you have an opportunity to get revenge. Well, you know what the Bible says about revenge, but that's not what you want to do. If people are all gossiping and slandering together at the water cooler, you know what the Bible says about that, but that's not what you want to do. You want to do what everyone else is doing. And so you talk like them and you dress like them and you act like them and you spend your money like them and you spend your time like them and you raise your kids like them. And you say, but I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You're not. Riken's not a service dog just because he went through obedience school. He's not obedient. He's not a service dog. So the fourth foundation, stone of salvation, is very closely related to this one of obedience. It's the promise of salvation. This is the purpose. You were saved to obey Jesus, to have a relationship with him, a relationship of obedience. He is your Lord. You are his subject. But it's more intimate than that. At Verse 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. So we're going to nudge our little microscope over to that part now. The sprinkling with His blood. I just want to point out as we go through it. notice the Trinity in this verse. You spot the Trinity? Foreknowledge of God the Father. God is the one that has this plan that's working it out in His sovereignty in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that regenerates you and gives you a new heart and convicts you of your sin, leads you into Christ-likeness. For the obedience to Jesus Christ, there's the one that we have our most direct relationship with, Jesus Christ, he's the one that became man. And so we obey him, He is our Lord. But how do we get to be part of what the Trinity is? You know, one of the great mysteries and privileges of the universe is that this self-sufficient God, this trinity, built an entire universe for the express purpose of creating a bride for the Son. That's why there's evil in the world. That's why there's sin. That's why Satan was allowed to do what he did, and Adam and Eve were allowed to do what they did, and everything that came was so that out of this fallen, corrupt world, the son could honor the father by giving his life to accomplish the father's will for the son, which was to get the son a holy bride to spend eternity with, and we are that bride. We've spoken about that when we went through the the Gospel of John, those first few messages in John chapter 1, where it got very, very deep, right? Well, how does this all work together? It has to do with the death of Christ bringing us in, which is called here the sprinkling of His blood. So your salvation was planned by God for a path of holiness to the purpose of having a relationship of obedience to Jesus Christ. We are His wife, His bride. He is our husband, our Lord. But it also comes with this unimaginable blessing of a promise, a covenant of salvation that comes through the sprinkling of his blood. Now, it's all wrapped up in this word sprinkling. It's, it's kind of a technical term here, really. It's the, the word sprinkling refers, whenever you're reading it here in the Old and the New Testament, sprinkling refers to the act of taking blood from an animal that's been sacrificed and usually with like a, a little grass. Um, piece of hyssop. It's sprinkled like this. Kind of like you flick it and the blood splatters. And so the way it worked is because people had to acknowledge that they were sinful, the Israelites were told, this is how you do it. You acknowledge that you're sinful. You kill an animal that's not sinful, an innocent creature, like a lamb. You spill its blood, which represents its life. That because the animal died in your place, you get to live another year. And then you have to do it again next year next year. And this, all this was pointing towards the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sin of the world once and for all. That's why he destroyed the temple and, and stopped the, Judeans, the, the, the Jewish system of sacrifice, That's why they don't do it anymore. They can't. The temple's gone. Why? Because there's no need for that sacrifice pointing towards Jesus anymore. Jesus has come. But the way that you got the death of that animal to apply it to your life was the sprinkling of the blood. Now, what's interesting is if you study this word sprinkling in scripture, you see, that you see it all over the place when it comes to sacrifice, but not on people. People didn't get sprinkled. That would be kind of gross, right? So you see it like in the 10th plague in Egypt, that the, the blood on the doorposts, we think of it as smearing the blood on the doorposts, maybe with like a... Paintbrush or whatever, so that the uh, angel of death would pass over the houses that put their faith in the dead animal and the fact that the animal died on the on behalf of the firstborn. Okay, but um, the book of Hebrews says that that blood was sprinkled. Hebrews eleven twenty eight. By faith he Moses kept the passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So Hebrews eleven twenty eight even uses that word sprinkle. So. You see the doorpost being sprinkled with blood. You see the altar being sprinkled with blood. You see the mercy seat, which is in the temple, sprinkled with blood by the high priest. You don't see people sprinkled with blood. The exception is the high priest himself and, and his son, the Aaronic line. And one other exception is a leper. When a leper gets cleaned, there's a sprinkling ceremony as well. But then there's this one passage, and if you want to, you can turn there, Exodus 24. And it's an important passage because the writer of Hebrews keeps referring to it. And it helps you understand what Peter's talking about. So Peter would absolutely have known this passage. While you're going there, I can tell you the word sprinkling is mentioned 32 times. Always as the language of sacrifice. Symbolizing your part in the animal's death. And in Exodus 24 and verse 6, you have the only time in the Bible where the blood is sprinkled on the nation. Exodus 24, verse 6. And Moses took half... So they kill an ox, okay? They're going to sacrifice this ox and they drain out its blood. Verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, like a bucket. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. That's normal. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. This is the Ten Commandments, the stuff that was given on Sinai. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do and we will be what's the word there in verse 7 obedient and moses took the blood and threw it for the first time on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant that yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words and at that point they see the god of israel come and he's coming on this beautiful um, pavement of sapphire stone, etc. So it's really interesting. It's the only time this happens. Moses takes the blood and he throws it on the people. He sprinkles it on the people standing there and the next thing that happens is God comes down on a pavement. I didn't even read that. I, just, I should read it. It's a cool verse. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. That's verse 10. So think about it. An animal dies, this oxen, the blood is put on the altar, but then the people come. He reads them the commandments of God. They commit whatever Yahweh tells us we will do and we will be obedient. And that is linked with then Moses saying, okay, the covenant's being sealed. And he Sprinkles the blood on the people. You do not want to be in the front row on that day in church. Sprinkles the blood on the people. And the next thing that happens is God comes down himself standing on a pavement of sapphire. You see how the writer of Hebrews uses this? How Peter uses this? How everybody who knew this passage and also knew Jesus saw this? You can go back to our passage. Sprinkling is linked to obedience. There's the, the commandments of God, the commitment to do the commandments of God, the sprinkling of the sacrifice, and the presence of God himself. This is what Jesus came to do. We sang his name, Jesus Messiah. We called him Emmanuel. Manu is the a preposition in uh, pronoun in Hebrew. Manu means us. Manu achshav uh, chochim. Let's we now go. Manu just means us. Im means with. And El means God for Elohim. Im, Manu, El. With us, God. That's who Jesus was. By the sprinkling of his blood and our commitment to obey him, he is among us. And you see this in Hebrews. If you want, you can turn. I'll I'll read some Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10. There's some. And you have to remember that for these people, this was an extremely graphic reality that we just see as like a picture. But man, if we were actually going to do that one Sunday here, we would need to probably by law send out a warning to all of you who have kids that this is going to be a difficult Sunday to come to. I mean, imagine that. Imagine you came to church this morning, and for me to make a point of what this was like, we had hundreds of dead animals slaughtered in the lobby. And it smelled like dead animal. And the way you could tell who the elders were is that on their, they were the ones that had blood splattered on their suits because they were the ones killing the animals all morning. And then I say, Do you commit to obey? And you say, we do. We read the commandments of God. We commit to obey Him. We have been saved for obedience. And I say, right. Instead of communion today, I'm going to sprinkle this ox blood on y'all. You know why my kids are sitting in the gallery this morning. (laughs) They were warned. So this is what their life was like. This violent death applied to them in response to their commitment to obey is what brings God among them. And in Hebrews 9, verse 12, it says, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, not a yearly one. For if the sprinkling, there's our word, of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of the heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So if the sprinkling of actual animal blood helped make them pure for what they're doing, how much more the sprinkling of Christ's blood will make us pure? And then in Hebrews chapter 10, this is a, a familiar verse, but maybe you haven't seen it with the sprinkling context. Verse 22: Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see how the sprinkling and the covenant go together, the promise? Where was I? Uh, Hebrews 10:24. And let us consider how to stir up one another. To love and good works. Obedience. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church gathering is the obedience to Jesus Christ. It's the obedience that comes from committing to obey Him and the sprinkling of His blood on you. Now I know... Pastors always try to find come to church as one of the application points. But this one's pretty easy to find. That's what he says. He says, if you've been sprinkled clean, the very next thing is, let's consider how to stir up one of the love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Some people make a habit of not gathering with the church. That's not obedience. As I told the students at Mobile this week, my favorite illustration of this is of an octopus. You know, an octopus has eight tentacles, and each one has its own brain. And the tentacle's job is to go and sniff and smell and find food and grab it and take it to the mouth of the octopus. If you chop off the tentacle, its brain causes it to keep working. So the octopus will just grow back another tentacle, and that tentacle will keep living for a while, and it'll keep sniffing, and it'll keep finding food, and it'll grab the food, and then there's no mouth because it's severed from the body until eventually it just dies because it's not feeding the body. It's not part of the body. And that's what you're like when you are separated from a body of believers and you're the the lone ranger Christian. Oh, I sing to Jesus in my car and I pray to Jesus and I have a friend who holds me accountable and I read my Bible. I don't need church. It's a human institution. No, it's not. The church is the body of Christ formed by His blood. And the way you... You are brought into the bodies through the Holy Spirit who knits us together. And if you are severed, you you can still carry on using your spiritual gifts, but you're not nourishing the body. So you're just a useless tentacle on the body of Christ. And you're not being nourished by the body. and You will eventually shrivel up. So your question should be, if, if you're tracking with the sprinkling, okay, so the death of Jesus is what saves us, not our works. We're saved for obedience. We get this through the sprinkling. So How do I get his blood sprinkled on me? How do I get this applied to me? How do I get to be in the group that the the blood gets sprinkled on? Charles Spurgeon said it this way. This is absolutely needed. The blood shed must become to each one of us the blood sprinkled. How can I know, says one, that the blood of Christ is upon me? Here's his answer. Do you trust Christ? Do you believe that he made atonement on the cross, trusting in what Jesus did and in that alone. Unquote. So this is what he's saying. Yes, we talk about Jesus died for the sin of the world. Well, let me ask you this. If Jesus died for the sin of the world, why do people go to hell? And the answer is that the blood that he shed on the cross, although it is sufficient for everybody at all time who believed in him to be saved, it's not applied to everybody. Many are called. How many are chosen? Few are chosen. So the blood shed needs to be applied to you. You can't be, I'm going to be a Muslim and Jesus' blood will cover me anyway. So I've got my bases covered. That's not how that works. Atheists don't go to heaven. Anyone who isn't obeying Jesus doesn't go to heaven. Even those people who call themselves Christians. So you might be in this church calling yourself a Christian And still not actually be a Christian because the bloodshed has not been applied to you. And how do you know? Do you trust Jesus? Are you trusting in him alone? Do you believe that he made atonement on the cross? Do you believe that? So it's what we call substitution atonement. He died as a substitute for you on the cross. And so you don't trust in your own works. You're trusting in what he did and him alone. And so if I ask you, why would you go to heaven if you died right now? You have a stroke right in your pew and you fall over. How, how sure are you that the next thing that you would see is Jesus welcoming you to heaven? And why? And if you say anything other than, I, I, I'm just trusting Jesus. That's the wrong answer. If you say it's because I come to church. If you say it's because I got baptized. If you say it's because I've been a Christian forever or because I was born in a Christian home or I've lived a long life of good works, you're missing the whole point. No, you trust in Jesus. That's why you go to heaven. But that said, why did he save you? To obey him. So how do you know that you trust in Jesus? Look at your life. Are you somebody who loves to obey him? Or do you love to disobey him? Ephesians 2, 9. For by grace you have been saved. Verse 9 says, Not as a result of works that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. You know, when you become a service dog, they give you a little waistcoat, a little waistcoat that says service dog on it. It usually says, do not pet on it. And so when you travel on a plane, you can take this. We have friends who have a, a service dog, and they, they, when they travel on a plane, they put the little vest on, Little waistcoat, little vest, Says I'm a service dog, and then they can take it with on the plane. So I thought, well, I want to take my dog with me on vacation. Where do you get one of these vests? Because if putting the vest on the dog makes it a service dog, I'll just go get a vest. The problem is, you put the vest on the service dog, and the service dog doesn't obey you. It's not because the vest was faulty. It's not the vest that's faulty. It's the dog that's faulty. right? You can't just put the label on it and make it obey. It needs to be obedient to get the label. You understand that? Same with Christians. You don't just say, I'm a Christian, and that makes you a Christian. No, you need to be obedient in order to claim the title Christian. Now, I've just explained to you how you become a Christian by faith in Christ. But don't go calling yourself a Christian out there and telling people that you are a subject to the Lord Jesus Christ if you refuse to obey Him. The application point, very simple. Read your Bible so that you learn what he wants. And then obey. That was your purpose of salvation. We looked at the plan, the path, the purpose, and the promise. Let's live out that purpose and promise of our salvation in obedience through the covenant of Christ's blood this very week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word and the reminder that we have been saved for obedience But we have not been saved by our obedience. We've been saved by the obedience of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being obedient to the point of death and for offering that righteousness to us. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would turn from their sin and embrace your free forgiveness through your blood and that the blood might be sprinkled on them too through faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.